but in Poland, young means below 50. Does it? Yeah. Uh, I decided I'm not going to have money stop from a kid receiving a education because I don't think that's right. And this is kind of music that the kids know and they want to learn. And then they have so much more excitement, more energy, more passion, more drive to learn the instrument. Due to our very uh, difficult, complicated and painful history, um, Writers of your generation um, had a completely different um, meaning and um, obligations than we have. I would call it comfort food with multiple personalities. And it really continues for me to be, you know, about, you know, sharing the heritage and keeping the heritage alive. Because so many of our readers and so many of our, you know, listeners have lost the recipes that Bapcha used to have. Poland, uh, things that come to mind, not a whole lot, no. Probably not a whole lot. Uh, Polish sausages? No, I don't know anything about that country. Poland? Sausages. <laughs> Pierogies? Is that it? We hope it's not. That's what we're going to try to show you. And I'm Tomek Kniat. Welcome to the 59th episode of Polkast. If you want to join us in promoting Polish culture, history and great work of interesting Poles around the world, because Poland and Poles need good publicity now more than ever. And if you want to hear your name at the beginning of our next episode, please visit our patrons page at mypolkast.com support. You can find all the information about our crowdfunding campaign on our website, mypodcast.com. It hardly ever happens to us that we actually uh, pay attention to dates. But this date is very special. Today, when we release our uh, 59th episode, it is actually the 11th of November 2018. And it is a very special day because today Poland and Poles around the world are celebrating the 100th anniversary of Poland regaining its independence. The dream of generations of Poles came true. The Polish state was reborn after 123 years of partitions of being divided into three parts ruled by Russia, Prussia and Austria. After number of uprisings, free Poland reappeared on maps of the world. Well, it was very difficult to regain freedom, of course, and Poland, uh, Poles fought for their country's freedom, not only on battlefields, which they did, but also they did something that's almost unthinkable. Despite the brutality of their oppressors, who did absolutely everything they could to kill Poland's culture, language and history, They managed, despite the 123 years of being completely separated into three parts, to preserve its non-material heritage, which is exactly language, culture and history. Finally, on 11th of November 1918, with the end of the World War I, Poland regained its independence. The 20 years between the world walls was the time of creating one country out of three separate parts with different political, economic and judicial systems. It was also the time of rebuilding Poland's economy and indeed a lot, a lot was achieved. For example, uh, the Gdynia port on the Baltic Sea was built. The aviation industry was developed, so these were pretty important developments. Polish Airlines, one of the oldest airlines in the world. I think we also should say that in 1918, Poland gave the voting rights to women. One of the first countries in the world with constitution, definitely first one in Europe, and one of the first countries where women had voting rights. But we need to mention that starting in 1919, 
Poland thought the Polish-Bolshevik War, which ended in 1920, with Poland's decisive victory at the Battle of Warsaw. Poland served Europe from Bolsheviks. But when you really think of this anniversary, we're talking a hundred years. But out of those hundred years, only 50 years indeed were really free. These are the 20 years between the two world wars and the time since the fall of communism. Independence Day is celebrated annually on 11th of November. It became a national holiday in 1937, but under communism until 1989. Celebrating it on that day was forbidden. It was reinstated in 1990 after the fall of communism. So this year, the 100th anniversary of Poland regaining its independence, is a big celebration, and the celebrations are held all over the world. There's so many of them that we would probably have to spend hours and hours and hours enumerating them. But we want to tell you about a really beautiful and rather unusual tribute to Poland's 100th anniversary, which is won by the Lithuanian Railways. Seven locomotives use their sound signals to play the Polish anthem. And you can see a video of this on our website. that art has a special role to play in empowering people and helping them overcome their limitations. Arthur Levinovich, a violin player, composer, and teacher, has made it his life mission to help kids with various disabilities and special needs learn to play the violin and enjoy music. His school, Singing Strings in Toronto, offers unconventional music education to everybody, including kids from low-income families. But Arthur is also a composer, and his Polonaise of Freedom was recently performed at a gala concert in Toronto, celebrating the 100th anniversary of Poland regaining independence. His violin students were on stage as well, and I thought it was a great performance. What I really liked when we started talking was your idea of um, employing music um, to help kids with disabilities, special needs, and so on and so on. Uh, the program focused on students that were in the grades junior kindergarten and senior, garden, senior kindergarten, all the way to grade one, two, three, four, and five. That would be starting age four years old, all the way up to 11 years old. When they're 12 years old, they go to grade six. Uh, and in grade six, Toronto uh, Catholic District School Board already offers violin programs for that grade. But the problem is we're, we're actually missing out an entire gap of all of these students that should be actually learning a violin. They are more... They should be learning the instrument more than the students in grade six because when you get to grade six and you start learning an instrument, the student has only two years to prepare for high school additions. So what I decided to do was create a solution, a low-cost program, so that I can teach students the instrument at a younger age. And I noticed that the special needs program didn't even have a violin program at all. And I was at St. Eugene at the time running the violin program. And I noticed that the special needs kids they really wanted to learn violin, but unfortunately, they didn't have the materials, they didn't have the resources, and then, and most importantly, they didn't have a teacher dedicated there to teach them some kind of violin. And to me, since teaching is a, a very big vocation to me, 
I want to teach every single student and I want to show the world that no matter how different a child can be, whether physical or uh, in learning style different, they are always, they're all unique in their own ways and they can all learn how to play an instrument. So I set it out as my mission to be able to show these special needs kids and, and teach them how to be able to play an instrument. And now I use different ways of inspiration as well. But one of the main, one of the biggest uh, inspirational things that I use was I showed them a YouTube video. Dominik Powonski, a Polish virtuoso cellist who lost the use of his left hand to brain cancer. But composers write music specifically for him just so that he is able to play and show that even though he has his differences, he is still able to show his beautiful music to people. I just want to uh, say that I was also very shocked to hear that uh, this summer Dominic Powanski passed away at age 41. I, I showed YouTube recordings of his uh, of performances at, at the time when he had the paralysis in his left hand. And uh, this is something that the students uh, really saw that they can overcome pretty much the, you know, even over the biggest odds. I knew that with my students, I knew I was going to have that mobility challenge because of the, of the lack of strength in the muscles in their left hand. And that's the, and that's the, those are the muscles that are crucial in being able to move the fingers to play the different notes and change the sounds. So I, I redeveloped my way of teaching the curriculum for the special needs students. And I also taught them how to improvise and create their own music, but using the four tones, the four open tones of the violin. And I have G, D, A, and E. So on all those four different notes, they can play it in whichever order they want. And that's what I, and I, that's what I showed the students. And every single day, every, not every single week, I would come back and I would teach the students on the chalkboard, it says, I, we love you, Arthur. And I remember that to this day. And it's just something so nice to see. The, the students appreciated the violins, even though they were so minimal because they knew that they couldn't play the, with their fingers the way I could. Uh, it was so sincere to see their, their happiness and the amount of joy they were getting from actual violin lessons. And I think it could go a really long way for the psychology of, and, the, and the psychology and the mental uh, uh, mental health for these students if they also had a little bit of inclusion and were able to attend uh, music lessons, you know. So you, because of the kinds of students you have and different different um, needs that they have, from what I understand, you also use different methods, not the ones that are typically used in conventional music classes. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, I just wanted to point out that the Suzuki and the RCM methods are still being taught in schools, and um, these methods are over a hundred years old, you know. And and seeing how mathematical pro math programs and science programs are evolving over the years, we go. We have Nelson Math, and then we had some either another Math Quest, and we have just these different math programs that are just getting better and better with every year. But why is the violin program still in the same spot that it was a hundred years, like a hundred years ago? The violin is still being taught in schools the same way. And for me, you know what? I said, you know, that's that's not right. Something's not right here. Why are these kids? They don't want to learn violin. They don't think it's cool enough. And I said, you know what? What the problem is, they go home and their friends are waiting for them. And they said, okay, buddy, what did you learn? What did you learn today, Johnny? And he says, he says, and he starts playing. Mary had a little lamb. Well. His buddy's not going to really appreciate Mary Had a Little Lamb when he knows all of the songs that Post Malone and these uh, hip-hop artists. What's perceived as really cool and hip on media, and a lot of these kids, they're, uh, they're highly influenced by the media. So I said, you know what, I can't, I can't teach these kids to like Mary Had a Little Lamb songs. I can't show them that that's cool enough, and they're not going to have that desire to really want to learn an instrument if they don't really have something that they can even compare themselves to or have, you know, have some kind of interest in, right? So what I decided to do is I take all of the important things that is found in classical music, such as scales and finger exercises and form and technique, but to more modern music. So jazz music, uh, rock music, hip-hop music, 
you know, regular pop dance style music. And this is kind of music that the kids know and they want to learn. And then they have so much more excitement, more energy, more passion, more drive to learn the instrument because they have something that they can go home and show their friends and be like, look what I learned today. I'm getting excited just talking about it. (laughs) (laughs) I can hear it. Uh, when I was running the music program, this Toronto Singing Strings program uh, at St. Eugene, I was running it both actually at Father Sarah Elementary School and St. Eugene Elementary School last year. And I noticed that a lot of students at St. Eugene are actually coming off, are, they're from lower income families. And these families uh, who are unfortunately on, on government welfare programs, uh, they don't have the funds to be able to even purchase violin lessons or even rent a violin. So what I decided to do is, because I have you know this love to teach children, uh, I decided I'm not going to have money stop from a kid receiving a education, because I don't think that's right. So I decided to create kind of a foundation, because... I don't want to just kind of donate money to causes that I'm not really too sure about myself. I decided to create my own foundation so that I know where my funds are going and I know exactly who they're targeting. Uh, that's how Power of Strings Foundation was um, created. And basically, money that was coming from the parents paying for lessons and purchasing violins uh, from Toronto Singing Strings was uh, f- flowing into the foundation with proof that parents who are coming from these low-income families, I would basically provide the lesson, the instructions, I would be purchasing violins, and I would be covering any costs uh, required to uh, teach the the student uh, the instrument and and music uh, lessons. And my uh, violin supplier became especially interested in this endeavor. He has become a very major sponsor for Uh, this foundation and he has now given me ten thousand dollars for five years for these students his name is dennis dennis is the owner of music m the company that makes violins and 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 this is the this is where i have been receiving all of my violins and you were recently actually brought your your group to perform at an independence concert uh, to celebrate the 100th um, anniversary of Poland's regaining independence. And you played with the little kids, right? With, um, with, a, with an actually with a piece that you composed yourselves. What inspired you to compose Polonis of Freedom? Well, that inspiration actually is rooted from Poland itself. I was there this summer with uh, actually Maestro Rozbicki. He was there on the, uh, the music and history tour. Uh, we went to Poland, we went to Italy, and we went to Czech, uh, Czech Republic. Uh, so while we were in Poland, we actually visited the uh, panorama of Ratowice. The Ratowice panorama is located in Wrocław, Poland, and it was it was uh, painted in between 1893 and 1894 by many different Polish uh, famous painters, uh, such as Jan. Stika and uh, Wojciech Kosak. The the panorama Ratowicka is enormous and it is a cyclorama. So it is a painting that is depicting the Battle of Ratowicka. It was fought on April 4th, 1794, and it was one of the first battles of the Polish Kościuszko uprising against Russia. Uh, while I was there, it was kind of more of a, of a museum, kind of a trip experience. Uh, they had a kind of a kind of an audio narration narrator going and explaining in what scene what was going on, but to me I I couldn't I couldn't really hear any of the words because my head was just filled with music and that, this Polonaise was in my head the the music of the Polonaise filled my ears and uh, as soon as I got uh, as soon as I got back to the hotel I started working on the music and. Uh, I spent pretty much the entire trip working on it, and when I re- when I came here to Toronto, when I arrived, I uh, I finished it up, printed out the music, and I gave it to the musicians, and I started teaching my own students, and I wrote a specific part just for them, and uh, I I don't know if this was depicted really well in the performance or not, but my my students were set up as kind of like soldiers, and they were kind of like this a supporting role, and as soon as the orchestra started playing. 
when we needed more more energy when we needed more music these students would come out with their bows their bows would be coming out like swords and they would be playing these notes in this polonaise and there's also uh, a vocal right absolutely the elisa malatesta she was the um, soprano uh singer who uh sang the aria that was for this polonaise it was kind of this ah uh, just just like this um melodic um, line that was going over the uh over the entire orchestra this polonaise is very battle-like it's kind of it's a call to arms kind of kind of style of music and when you have this one beautiful voice just singing over the entire battle it just kind of like puts you in a moment of momentary peace while you're in this battle that's the painting that that's the picture i'm trying to paint here with the music so what are the plans with your polonaise of freedom now uh, after the concert, uh, the Polonaise ended up opening more doors for me in, and for my career. Uh, the first thing that happened was I went to see the artists that came from Poland uh, for, these, for this concert. Uh, one of them was Alexander Wadish, who was a uh, bass singer. He also has been running the artistic agency called Polkan Art, uh, in, which is based in Canada and Poland. And what he wanted to do was take my music and further promote it and list it on his website. And, uh, and his wife, who is also a very successful singer, uh, her name is Natalia Kovalenko, and she's of Ukrainian descent. And she also uh, showed interest in this Polonaise and uh, even mentioned that I can perhaps move forward and rewrite the music a little bit so that it can suit the musicians uh, for, the, for the connections that she has in Ukraine. She also uh, mentioned the possibility of a Ukrainian orchestra performing the Polonaise as well. And even Alexander further brought it to the attention, perhaps we can uh, take it to other countries as well. That's just uh, something to, to think about in the future. As of now, uh, my next focus now is to, to rewrite the Polonaise uh, so that I can send it to, to Alexander Wadish, and then he can further take it to his orchestras in Poland. And, you know, we can continue and put this music more of into the repertoire of, of, our, of our motherland. Because I wrote it for the Ojczyzna, as they say it. I wrote it for, in dedication for the 100-year anniversary of Poland, of Poland regaining its independence. I, I didn't write it to receive money for it. It came from the heart. And it's just something that I wanted to give back to the community on Polish Day. You are a teacher, you are a, a composer, and you're actually a string player, a musician. Which, which of those three is the most important to you? Asking me to choose what's the most important out of those three would be like choosing if I love my mom or my father more. I can't see myself doing anything not related to music. Uh, I'm I'm trying to further continue and, um, and and receive some kind of a certification uh, for music therapy, and that's another field of of music I would say that I really want to get into. So uh, I see myself as a composer because I love writing music. I like to create music. Uh, I even like writing songs for my own students so that they have something new to learn every week. And uh, performing music. This is something that I just love to do. I breathe it, I live it. And then, as well, uh, teaching. I say teaching is a, is a huge vocation for me. I don't really see myself doing anything else but teaching. Teaching is my, I would say, is my forte. Because it's truly something that I love to do. And even though I'm having a really, like, I'm having a bad day, when I go teach, teaching makes it into a good day, always. It always does that. We'll play his Polonaise of Freedom at the end of this episode. But to learn more about Artur Levinowicz, including his artistic history, and to find links to his music, please visit our website at mypolcast.com. What can be more appropriate than celebrating the 100th anniversary of Poland regaining its independence with culture? The 11-day annual Toronto International Festival of Authors, Canada's oldest and largest festival of literature, which offered this year over 60 events and was attended by approximately 200 authors from nearly 30 countries, 
contributed to celebrating this anniversary with a gathering of three of Poland's top authors. They are the cream of the cream of the young generation of Polish writers with remarkable success both in Poland and internationally. One of the festival's events celebrating Poland featured a panel discussion and a Q&A with the three authors chaired by our own Canadian best-selling author Eva Stachniak and hosted by Professor Tamara Trojanowska, director for the Center for Drama, Theatre and Performance Studies at the University of Toronto, former director of the Polish Language and Literature Programme. We are happy to present to our podcast listeners parts of this very interesting evening. Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to the 39th edition of the Toronto International Festival of Authors. I'm Tamara Trojanowska, your host for today's event, Celebrating Poland with acclaimed Polish writers Jakub Mawetski, Dorota Masłowska, and Jakub Żulczyk for an insightful panel conversation with Ewa Stachniak. This panel is being organized to um, not only give a voice to our uh, wonderful young generation of Polish writers, but also to commemorate um, the centenary of Poland's independence. So, Jakub Mawetski, as a writer and translator. He has published short stories and nine novels, the last of which is uh, the 2017 Rust. Mawetski has been nominated for a number of literary prizes, including the Janusz Zajda Award, the Angelus Prize for Tremble, De Gott, and the Nike Literary Prize for his novel, Traces, Schlade. He lives in Warsaw. This author is supported by the Book Institute and the Consulate General of Poland in Toronto. Dorota Maswowska is a writer and a playwright. She was 19 when her first bestseller novel, Snow White and Russian Red, was published. Highly controversial and translated into more than 20 languages, it won her critical acclaim and the Passport Polityki Prize. Her second novel, Paw Królowej, The Queen's Spew, won the Nike Literary Award. Her first drama, A Couple of Poor Polish-Speaking Romanians, was staged in Australia, the US, the UK, Germany, and Sahalin. Her second, No Matter How Hard We Try, and the Ministry of Culture Prize. She also lives in Warsaw. And Jakub Żulczyk is a writer, columnist, and screenwriter from Poland's Mazurian Lake District, who now lives and works in Warsaw. He was the recipient of the Vilia Dadecius Scholarship and went on to win the International Young Euro Contest for Essayists. His novels include Harmony in Some Way, Radio Armageddon, The Institute, and Blinded by the Lights, which has been made into a TV series by HBO Europe. Zulczyk has also written for weekly and monthly magazines and is the creator and screenwriter of the TV series and the Teach 2 on Canal Plus Poland. And our moderator, Ewa Stachniak, an internationally best-selling author of historical fiction. Necessary Lies won Amazon.com slash Books in Canada first novel award in 2000. The Winter Palace was a Globe and Mail best book of the year and made the Washington Post's most notable fiction list in 2012. Born and raised in Poland, she moved to Canada in 1981 and lives in Toronto. Her latest novel, The Chosen Maiden, inspired by the art and voice of Bronisława Nizinska, Václav Nizinski's brilliant sister, was published in Canada, the US, Germany, Poland, and Italy. Please join me in welcoming our panel. Here are a few questions asked by Eva Stachniak that our panelists answered. Uh, we've heard uh, when we were listening to Tamara, I mean, she spoke about this sort of very, very heavy tradition of liberation and the historical weight of literature. Um, we definitely felt it in our generation. Do you feel it as well? 
no, no, I think the, uh, this whole history and this uh, century of regaining independence uh, simply shows us that uh, how privileged we are uh, compared to countries where people don't have this uh, freedom and this independence. Uh, so, yeah, I think uh, that's the only... Uh, but it doesn't weigh you down. I don't, no. I don't think no, so. You're aware of it, but it yeah. doesn't weigh you down. Okay. I think that due to our very uh, difficult, complicated and painful history, um, writers of your generation um, had a completely different um, meaning and um, obligations than we have. Mm, and that a writer in Poland used to be considered as a um, person uh, that has partly metaphysical role to play uh, in this social theater uh, as, a, as a human warehouse of national soul or I, I think it, it, it has a lot to do with our country being attacked all the time and um, it was a really important role but now it has uh, changed completely because um, literature turned into um, classical market and we are producers of books more than spiritual beings uh, or, or, or some metaphysical uh, actors of this uh, spectacle. I think that a writer living now in 21st century, and it doesn't matter if it's if he lives in Poland or in Canada, Canada or any, anywhere else in the world, I think we shouldn't think too much about what was written before because it, mm -hmm. it can overwhelm us, you know, and you, all, you automatically start to think that what you do is completely unnecessary and why would you add your little thing to this enormous pile, so mm -hmm. it, it may stop you. And when it comes to relations with Poland history and so on, my, my last novel I wrote is called Zgórzeb Słów, I think you can trans translate it to Hound Hill, the Hill of Dogs, something like that. And this novel is about a family living in a small town in a small community and this family sees themselves as some uh, kind of a judges the people who create the law and who punish people for something that happened in the past for the crimes that happened in the past and they haven't been you know uh, brought to brought to law and by being those judges they create the community they create the, like some kind of like secret mythology that keeps the community together and a lot of people who read the book see the book as a metaphor for Poland, for something deeply mm -hmm. Polish. But I don't know if it's true. But a lot of readers read my book like that. And uh, a, a, a lot of readers think that writing this, writing my stories, I say something more about about Poland, but I, I try to not overthink it because I don't want to be a publicist. I don't want to sit and write my books with some thesis on my mind. I think that always the reader will see a little bit differently than I intend him to. So I don't try to push him. And my readers that I have in Poland, like my faithful readers, know that. What does it mean uh, to you to be a young Polish writer in 2018? I'm afraid that we are not that young anymore. <laughs> and we are, we, well, we it's are, all relative. <laughs> it's funny because uh, mm -hmm. we made our... Not, not Jakub, uh, but uh, me and uh, second Jakub um, made our debut very early and that's why we uh, became young writers forever. Okay, so you're frozen. Uh, in we, are 30, uh, we are 35, so, you know. But in Poland, young means below 50. Does it? Yeah. Below 50, he's a young writer. Like, a guy received, like, there is this literary award in Poland, it's called Passport Polityki, it's for young artists, and the guy who received the award last year is 10 years older than me. He's 45, so we're still young. 
This is what the panelists said when they were asked about their childhood memories from the communist Poland before the transformation, when they were kids. I, I was six when the, there were like the free election in mm -hmm. 89 and the fall of communism, you can say, uh, when it happened. But I have one memory, uh, except the black and white TV and so on, but the one memory that relates, I don't know, to communism in my life is I remember when I first had a sip of Pepsi. <laughs> I, I actually remember it. I was four and I took a sip of Pepsi and I was like, this is sweet, man. <laughs> this is sweet. It's really sweet. And that's, that's the memory. I don't know if it says anything. Maybe it does. But I think a lot of people here don't remember that exactly. But I remember it. I remember the room I was sitting in. I remember what was the time of the day. I remember what the can looked like because it was a German white can of Pepsi. And it's a really vivid memory in my brain. Jakob's story uh, uh, reminded me that uh, the, probably the first memory uh, was uh, when my uh, that uh, um, came back from work and gave uh, us uh, uh, free Snickers bars. Okay. Yeah, I remember the other taste. I remember like this German banana pudding. <laughs> <laughs> it was banana pudding, and I remember the thought. And I think it was the same day as the Pepsi thing. <laughs> and I and I remember. Wow. I think that's the best thing you can eat. There's nothing better like that's the best taste ever. And I still remember it to this day. Like, it's God, God's food. My memory of uh, these years, uh, mm -hmm. about, mostly about uh, taste, of, uh, taste and colors, which were very bland and dirty and mm -hmm. indistinct, and very uh, bad food. I mean, I, I understand uh, what you say very well because food was so disgusting that every single uh, Western piece of food, like a banana, or during the communists we had milk in uh, plastic bags and it was very watery and untasty. And then suddenly when I tasted this uh, Western milk, which was very thick and sweet, I, I also remember it as uh, uh, one of the brightest days of my life. <laughs> but the special thing is this dirtiness and this thousands uh, shades of grey. I remember these years as grey years. Yes. Everything was grey. And a question from the audience. Um, yeah. Thank you for the great discussion. Um, I will start with a quick comment uh, about something that Ruta Maswowska said. Uh, since uh, uh, both her, me, and Jakub Szulczyk are born in the very same year, uh, we are still very, very young. Good. Just, just for the record. Um, but the question that I wanted to ask is... Thanks, um, man. I'm just one year older. You're still in the club. <laughs> um, but my question is, uh, you started we started a discussion with questions about how um, the responsibilities and the status of the author changed after 1989. And my question about this is, other things have changed as well. That is, right now uh, we have the internet, we have all the different media, all the different ways in which literature circulates. Uh, I'm sure probably half of the audience gathered here today checked their smartphones at least once during this meeting. Um, and the question is, how do you see uh, literature um, or your work or just in general functioning in that broader uh, multimedia online context? There, is, there are so many different ways of finding access to literature, whether it's through ebooks, internet, uh, film adaptations. Um, does it change the way you think about the way you write or um, the way you think about yourselves as authors? I think that uh, I'm more into uh, just writing and um, I know that uh, social media and this new uh, ways of creating literature and maybe they are more important and, and I should make an investment <laughs> here. I like this this uh, 
classical version of literature because I like writing and I like paper, I like books and uh, and that's how I want to do it myself and what uh, other people do with my work later it's uh, their uh, own choice but I am writing books no, I couldn't agree more because I'm a bit old-fashioned uh, and I um, Maybe it's naive, but I uh, believe that literature will survive uh, despite of all these new media and these new ways of telling stories. And for me, nothing can, uh, com can be compared to the real paper uh, book uh, that I uh, buy in, uh, in, in the bookshop and, and, and take home. It's, it's, this feeling is totally unique. I, I don't think that social media like uh, has an influence of on my writing per se. You know, I I don't see the connection. But I would be a, hypo a hypocrite to go against social media myself because I have a, I manage my own social media and I have a very strong online following and a very like and I manage a lot of connection with my readers. So. I think I wouldn't be where I am in Poland, like commercially as an author, uh, when, without social media. Like my last novel, uh, the 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 dog, the Hound Hill book, is like 800 pages long, and until the end, not much happens in the book. And I sold like 50,000 copies of it. And I wouldn't do that without social media. For me, it's a, like a really useful tool to contact with people and to promote my work, but I don't see it as an artistic tool in any way. I see it as a marketing tool and I see it as a tool to stay in contact with my readers. With I know who my readers are because of social media. I wouldn't know that. To learn more about the participants in the panel discussion and Professor Tamara Trojanowska, as well as to listen to some more excerpts, including the three authors' beginnings and inspirations, please visit our website at mypodcast.com. episode of Polcast brings you a taste of Polish cuisine. Those yummy recipes come from Laura and Peter Żeranski, authors of two cookbooks sold around the world and a hugely popular blog. This is how they start each new segment of their popular Smacznego Eating Polish series on our Polcast. Smacznego? We're here talking about our love for eating Polish. My name is Peter. And my name is Laura. And we wrote two heritage Polish cookbooks called Polish Classic Recipes and Polish Classic Desserts, where all the recipes have been handed down from previous generations. But updated for modern kitchens, so no more pinch of this or glass of that. Married for over 40 years, Peter, Polish, and Laura, American, have been cooking together and trying out recipes inherited from Peter's mother and grandmother. Peter's mom, Alina Żerańska, wrote The Art of Polish Cooking in 1968. It served as the foundation of the family's love for Polish food. Laura married into the family in 1973 and learned to cook Polish dishes from her mother-in-law. We thought it's time for us to talk to our Polish cooking experts slash collaborators. Well, we've been together for like over two years, guys. I can't believe this. It's It's been a while, huh? That's yeah. been a lot of great Polish dishes. <laughs> I want to ask you, food is your life, right? I mean, how much do you weigh? <laughs> That's getting awfully personal. That's a little personal, there, <laughs> Okay, you don't have to tell me exactly. I'm just asking whether you can be a food person and be in a good shape. You can be if you exercise and uh, watch how much of everything you eat. Um, however, I think I can tell you that both of us have gained 
considerable amount of weight since we started this whole project. <laughs> okay, so so you cannot escape that. <laughs> no, oh, it's hard. Pardon that. That doesn't have anything to do with the cookbooks. It's just that we, you know, we both love to eat and we both love to experiment with with different kinds of foods. And Laura's pouring through her, you know, four hundred cookbooks all the time to try to find new, you know, new recipes and new things to do. And a lot and a lot of our friends have you know, high expectations whenever, you know, we contribute dishes or they come over for dinner or for something. So let's talk about your friends and everybody else that you influence, right? Because, I mean, you have been, you have been celebrities, food celebrities. You go around, you prepare food for so many people. Have you ever counted how many people have eaten the food that you have prepared? I have no idea, but we can tell you that at some of the events that we've done, particularly in Wheeling, we've probably had probably close to 500 over Well, that's just in one event. Over 15 years, you know, it's, it's been thousands with all, the, with all the presentations that we've done and all the programs that we've put on and all the sets of samples that, you know, that, that we do. We, we go to one Polish church festival in Albany, New York every year where they get four or five thousand people a day, you know, and, and we make presentations to them and we take samples and, and the church ladies cook our desserts from our cookbook, you know, and, and just the word spreads. You don't only cook for Polish people, right? Oh, of course not. So the idea is to show non well, some of of your mission is to to spread the um, the greatness of Polish cuisine among the non-Poles. So, can you think of something that was particularly exciting? You know, something that you that that made made your day or made your week in terms of how your stuff was received by somebody who's not Polish. We have a group where in our community where we live called Suppers for Seven, and once a month, you know, seven or eight people get together and and you know bring bring dishes. One of, one of the first dinners that we did, Laura made golumpki, and the this, this stuffed cabbage rolls. And we made this for an American audience. And I brought out the potato vodka, the Luxusova, which is my favorite brand. And these people were amazed that when they started throwing back Polish vodka shots. We also did a kind of a cocktail party buffet one afternoon, one Sunday afternoon, and invited people from the neighborhood who kept always asking us, you have to have us over, you have to have us over. So I made things like uh, bigos, I made uh, lazy pierogies, and I, I made three or four different desserts, and some of the salads, the, the vegetable salad, and uh, people just absolutely loved it all. And there was food left over, but people took it home with them. <laughs> yeah, all of our friends seem to love Polish cuisine, you know, and because a lot of them aren't very familiar with it. Of course, they're familiar with you know, they've heard of kielbasa and, and pierogi, but we, we really try to share different dishes with them that they might not be used to seeing. If you were to, if you, in, in like a few words, if you were to say to somebody who has totally no idea about Polish cooking, Polish cuisine, what is it like? What would you say? I would call it comfort food with multiple personalities. Well, in, in, our, in our presentations, we make the point that um, it's not only comfort food, which often comes from, you know, the country and from farms, but the rural, you know, the, the, the dishes that were born in, in places like Warsaw and Krakow are very sophisticated and, and they will compete very well with, you know, the most sophisticated cuisines of Europe. So it's really two different personalities of Polish cuisine. And which, which do you think people are more interested in, for example, when you go to these presentations? I would say the comfort food for the most part, it, and when you're talking about an entree dish or a salad, but if you're talking about desserts, then I think they're more into the torts and the, the, the higher end kind of things that you would expect to maybe see in a fancy bakery. In every church festival, you know, that we go to, you know, the church ladies very often prepare and sell Polish food. But what you see over and over again are gołąbki, bigos, kielbasa, wazanki, you know, and, and it's, uh, that's, what they're, that's what they're used to. So when we introduce more sophisticated foods, 
it's it's oftentimes a little stranger, but they but they all love it. You travel quite a lot, right? It's not just your own little place where you live, but you go places. How far have you gone? Um, we go up and down the east coast of the United States. Of the United States, we've done. Uh, I think we've gone as far as New York and done presentations. We've gone as far south as Florida and done presentations and just about everywhere in between. We have a general rule that we'll go to any Polish festival that's within one day's driving distance of of home because we have to carry our books with us. So that prevents us from flying, uh, you know, flying further, further away. So I would say anywhere east of the Mississippi River in the U.S. Have you ever been to Poland? Oh, yes, yes. we have. We have. Uh, a few years ago, we took our daughter and son-in-law, who's not Polish, uh, to Poland for like a three-week trip, and he absolutely fell in love with the Polish cuisine, the Polish people, you know, just the country in general. In fact, one of his favorite dishes was kremówki, which he discovered in the Pope's uh, when we visited the Pope's hometown, and we were standing outside waiting to get into his home boyhood home and there were nuns who were selling these cakes on the corner and he went and bought a couple and we were all standing in line eating these things and he just fell in love with them and everywhere we went from then on he would have at least one if not three or four of those a day so he experienced them all over the country in their many variations. That's right. And they're, they're so well connected with Pope John Paul II, right? He loved them. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Yes. They were in our book. We have a recipe for them. It was the Pope's favorite dessert. And he often mentioned those in some of his talks when he was alive. And for many people, there was actually, they made a, they made a mistake, because I always thought that uh, Napoleonki and Kremówki were the same, but they're different. They are different. They are yeah. a little bit different, and and the the Napoleons I think have a more uh, French influence. The the type of dough is different, isn't it, Laura? Um, the dough is similar, but there's also a lot of uh, drizzled icing and that kind of thing on top of Napoleons, which are not on the on the uh, papal cakes. And I think also the the filling is different. I think in in Kremówki it's more fluffy. It's more sort of I think it's more delicate. No, you're, 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 you're absolutely right. right. When they're prepared correctly, as we, you know, saw from the nuns uh, in Poland uh, off their street carts, they were incredible. And, and something like that will stand up to the finest French pastries, you know, anywhere in the world. And finding the right texture for that filling was a real trial for me because my son-in-law really wanted us to make those and he wanted them in the book. And I tried many different variations and finally hit on one that he said, this is it. Apart from your Polish classic recipes and Polish classic desserts, your two uh, award-winning books that have been sold, I understand, all over the world. Is there anything? All over the world. That's right. Um, do you work on new ones? Is there anything new coming up? Or is that a finished product and you're done? Well, it's it's pretty much done for now in terms of in terms of another book. We did have a couple of ideas, but um, the it it really it's a very intense project that lasts you know takes us probably six months to produce a book, and you we have to f uh, find professional photographers and editors, and and it's a very complicated project. And we're at the stage of on, in our lives that we don't want to you know, take up quite so much time. Uh, we do, however, you know, promote our books on, um, on, on the website. We have, a, we have a blog that I put up a new, uh, we put up new recipes every month or so. Um, we we're just starting to a new project, um, that may involve reviewing restaurants in our, in our, in our area. So, you know, food is still, you know, a big important, uh, part of our lives but it, it's not it's not just about polish food how many kids do you have oh we just have one she's 38 okay. that's she's right your daughter in her own right oh where does she does she write about food no she's a young adult author she writes for you know like it from the middle school age up to mid-20s group um she has three books or the, th the third one will be out in may 
And she's done quite well. She just won an award for her first book. So, Did you feed her Polish food only when she was growing up? No. She tried things, but she wasn't a very adventuresome eater. So she didn't come to learn a to learn or enjoy Polish food until much later. But her her husband loves Polish food now, right? Oh, oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. At Christmas and, and Easter, you know, he's he's always looking for, you know, traditional Polish food. I think the the appetizers that we serve at Christmas with the uh, pure barst and the little mushroom filled crepes, not a shniki, um, are his favorite, and he would be very happy at Christmas if there's nothing else served except those two, <laughs> those two dishes. Your Christmas Eve is very traditional, right? It is. It, it is. Yes. It's become a little Americanized over the years, but um, yeah, it's we do a traditional Christmas Eve. We don't have as many dishes for the apostles as is you know traditional, but um, a lot of the traditional cakes and. And things are there, but and then Christmas Day we do we do an American Christmas. What is it about food that so many people are interested in it? I, I just think it's something that brings people together because it's something that everybody can enjoy, regardless of uh, you know where they come from or what their experience is. I mean, they can eat it, they can make it, they can bake it. I mean, it's so it, it just kind of gives everybody a chance to to get involved in it. It's. Um, It can be intensely satisfying. I mean, if you think about the millions of taste buds in our tongues and a, a spicy dish will, you know, wake up every single one of those taste buds. I mean, the legends about food are amazing. You know, whether you're eating oysters to become uh, sexier or eating, you know, some spicy food, you know, to wake, to wake yourself up. It, it gives people intense pleasure, and it's a topic to talk about. Are you adventurous in the sense of, apart from the, your, your love for Polish food, if you go somewhere, what kind of restaurant would you go to? Any kind of restaurant. Laura is a little less adventuresome than I am, uh, but I'll eat just about anything. I have a cousin in Norway who uh, posted a picture of a moose heart you know, yesterday on Facebook. And I asked her, I didn't know what it was, I asked her if it was a beef heart, and she said no, it was moose, and they regularly have moose and reindeer on her property in um, in Norway. You know, I'm willing to try it. We, you know, we go to Japanese restaurants, and, and I'll have sashimi and sushi, and there's not much that I won't try. I, I'm... I'm a little less adventuresome when it comes to eating, but I'll I'll try a little bit of everything, uh, and then and then move on. <laughs> You're gonna try tripe next time. No, you go I'm out? not. I'm not trying tripe. No. Oh, you <laughs> should. You should. It's a quiet taste. I promise you. I hated it all my life until I fell in love with it. Yeah, I did. I did not like chitlins. I spent some time in the south of the United States, and I had some chitlins prepared, you know, by by someone who. You know, supposedly knew, you know, how to prepare them, but they were not very appetizing. Well, I hope we continue listening to your fantastic recipes. People love them and they prepare them. So let's hope, you know, I mean, I hope you have enough for another 20 years or so. Oh, um, I, I think we do. For we us, keep it's, working on it. <laughs> yeah, we keep working on it. For us, that's one reason why I keep up the blog, because, you know, the recipes that we put on our blog are not from our cookbooks. Uh, they come from a variety of sources, and and it really continues for me to be, you know, about you know sharing the heritage and keeping the heritage alive, because so many of our readers and so many of our you know listeners have lost the recipes that Bapcha used to have, and we get more input from people. Oh, so thank you so much for the you know for the book, or thank you for the recipe. I lost all my recipes from my mother and from my grandmother. And we're so grateful. And that's really what makes us feel good. In the past episodes of our podcast, we have covered a large number of stories and presented to you many amazing people. And it's our great pleasure to update you on some of our interlocutors' new achievements, as well as some new developments in the stories we have featured. Well, I'm sure you remember Marek Probosz, one of the few Poles who made it in Hollywood. 
An actor, director, screenplay writer, university lecturer, passionate about history, whom we featured, in fact, in three episodes, 44, 45, and 49. In this last one, number 49, we showed his involvement in promoting a truly extraordinary Polish hero, Witold Pilecki, still too little known outside Poland. Captain Witold Pilecki was the author of Witold's Report, also known as Pilecki's Report, an official report written in 1943 after Pilecki volunteered to enter and then escaped from Auschwitz, a concentration camp. His was the first comprehensive record of a Holocaust death camp to be obtained by the Allies. Marek Probosz has played Pilecki many times, and we are so happy to tell you that on November 11th, the day of the 100th anniversary of Poland regaining independence, the play, The Auschwitz Volunteer Captain Witold Pilecki, starring and directed by Marek Probosz, adapted by another podcast featured person, Terry Tegnazian, will have its New York premiere on Broadway as part of the United Solo Festival at Theatre Row on 42nd Street. To learn more about Captain Pilecki and his extraordinary life and legacy, please listen to our episode 49. And we're happy to tell you that our absolutely favorite interlocutor, Ron Davis, a wonderful Toronto jazz um, musician and composer, released his 12th album titled Rhythmaron. So that was his 12th album and third since our interview with him. And I had absolute pleasure to be at, at the album release party when... And the concert, right? And the concert. And Ron has this amazing way of, of combining jazz, very modern and ambitious jazz, with symphonic orchestra. In this case, with string quartet. I have no idea how he makes his jazz so ambitious and so contemporary and at the same time so accessible. It's incredible. And we actually have something up our sleeves that also relates to Ron Davis, but we're not going to tell you. It's like part two of Ron Davis's story, which is one of our favorite podcast stories. So congratulations uh, to all of you guys. You've been listening to the 59th episode of Polcast. Polcast is created, recorded and produced in Toronto by Małgorzata Bonikowska and Tomek Kniat. For a lot of additional information, multimedia, links, please visit our website at mypolcast.com. And while you're there, please share your comments, your reactions and suggest ideas. If you know of any interesting story that we should cover on our podcast, please let us know. Please remember about our crowdfunding campaign. Like all our podcasts, we do count and depend on our listeners, on you. As we said before, what is free for you to listen to, it's not free for us to make. So, please support Polcast. Go to mypolcast.com slash support and make a pledge. If you like what you heard, please share it with your friends. And don't forget to rate this episode on your favorite podcast app. And we leave you with Polones by Artur Levinowicz. Thank you for listening to Polcast.